This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Mom? Mommy's with the maggots now. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm Trevor and welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 380. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us. Apple Podcasts is where you can reach out to say hey and Write us a quick review. We are so touched by your incredibly kind words of support and friendship. Please continue to keep them coming. It is amazing for us to hear your thoughts and to hear a little bit about you at the same time. And we're going to be reading all of them at the top of the shows we're putting together in the upcoming weeks. And we'll certainly shout you out. So keep your ears peeled. These past few shows have been wall-to-wall guests. Got at least one more planned for release next week. And then some episodes with just the three of us talking movies and life and stuff. The horror adventure you are about to embark on today is a very special one. At time of release, Evil Dead Rise is in theaters everywhere April 21st. We know you've been waiting so long for this film. We're going to tell you right now, it does not disappoint. We had the pleasure of catching one of the many advanced screenings that have been going on, and it left a tremendous impact on us. Join us as we read from the Book of the Dead with the writer-director of Evil Dead Rise, returning guest and friend of the show, multi-award-winning filmmaker Lee Cronin. Lee drops by the Speakeasy studio in person to preview the insanity that is in store for you and choosing this thrilling new setting for the Deadites. Learn about the things to watch for when you get a chance to experience the film, designing an all-new Necronomicon, how and if This story ties into the existing Evil Dead universe and your friends Ash and Mia. He also takes you into the post-production studio to let you in on the painstaking sound design process and development of the fantastic and powerful score with his longtime composer Stephen McKeon. Hey, enough from me. Let's get into the soul-swallowing action. With Lee Cronin and Evil Dead Rise, episode 380 of the Boo Crew is now slaying. Hey, this is Lee Cronin, and I can't think of anything scarier than me stuck in an apartment with the Boo Crew. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an extraordinary and inventive storyteller. He's crafted commercial spots for the biggest brands in the world and written and directed several fantastic short films, including 2010's Through the Night, that earned a nod for the Silver Melius Award and official selection status at several of the most prominent film festivals. 2013 brought along yet another tale of spellbinding terror with the multi-award-winning Ghost Train that further demonstrated his unbelievable ability to conjure up gorgeous cinematics and carefully plotted out sound design to fully immerse an audience in all aspects of story in a wonderfully unique way that is all his. By the time his debut full-length The Hole in the Ground arrived at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival, a stunning and atmospheric supernatural meditation on everything from trauma to parenthood, he not only got the attention of the Saturn Awards, Fangoria and A24, who distributed the film, garnered several jury prizes, but also caught the eyes of the legendary Sam Raimi and team. He promptly began work on their 50 States of Fright series for Quibi with the spectacular 13 Steps to Hell, starring Rory Culkin and Lulu Wilson, and was given the keys to arguably the most beloved and influential franchise in horror. At time of release on April 21st, you will get to experience what can only be described as a masterpiece, a chaotic and violent symphony of depravity that is relentlessly cruel, disturbing and insane, astonishingly fearless with every frame, delivering striking visuals built with loving care and precision. You can feel this by watching this hellbent 
on giving you the ride of your life. The film is Evil Dead Rise, and the writer-director is returning guest to the show, the inimitable Lee Cronin. Yeah! (laughs) That's a hell of an intro. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's It's good to be back. I have great memories of us having a conversation before about the hole in the ground so thank you for inviting me back oh, hell and, yeah and to, and to be in a room with you guys is even nicer so it's, it's incredible cool and yeah we yes. were i think we were the one of the first people we talked to at the beginning of lockdown yes. yeah it, it was around that time because yeah. i think when we spoke i was starting or i was writing evil dead rise at that point because i wrote the screenplay during the first wave of COVID, essentially the first draft, which was useful considering it's such a claustrophobic movie. Exactly. I was trapped yeah. inside my home with an evil force outside the door <laughs> that nobody true. knew what it could do to you. Um, and I was left to look around for various implements of, uh, of domesticity and, uh, and how I could use them in painful ways. Oh, well, you gosh. did a damn good job. You, yes. you hit this yes. out of the park, man. And I remember you told us back then how much of a fan you are yeah. of Evil Dead yeah. and how important it was for you to create an experience that honored that aspect while injecting your own voice and getting a bit deeper into that. How did those films change your life? Like what aspects or even maybe specific moments or aesthetics that you find galvanized you and actually seeped into your own creative vocabulary just in general? Yeah, I think like like I've spoken about it before, but it's a story worth telling, I guess, was that I was exposed to horror movies at a really young age just due to the structure of my family. There being an eight year age gap from me to my next sibling. So when I was like under 10, my siblings were all like mid mid to late teens. So I was just watched a lot of movies. I, you know, you could say I shouldn't have seen at such an impressionable yeah. point, but I'm very glad that it happened. But it was my dad that showed me evil, the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 back to back on VHS. And when you're at that age, you don't always necessarily understand an influence or why it's having an impact upon you. But what, what happened was it was just these things that I'd, I'd never seen the horror aspect ma- kind of mashed up with entertainment in such a way. Sure. So for many years, I didn't really understand what they were, but I'd go, I'd go back, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, like, what's that, what's that movie with the guy where he's laughing along with a lamp and a moose's head and he's completely lost. It, it was, th- it was that, that aspect of it that drew me back, which I think one of the discussions I had with Sam early on in terms of influence was evil deads often looked at as, you know, as the gore fest, but Equally, there's a great psychological aspect to, to the Evil Dead stories in terms of, you know, what I call the taunting, like that psychological warfare that the Deadites play on the innocent. And that's something that probably has had an impact on other things that I write, obviously, even outside of the Evil Dead world in terms of the stories I like to tell. Um, so, yeah, it was. And, and then as, it, as, you know, hitting that age where I like I wanted to be in a band when I was 12, bought a drum kit, sold my drum kit, bought a camcorder and started trying to emulate the type of shots and the energy you would see in an Evil Dead movie in my back garden in Ireland. And so it was always there and it was always Sam was always a filmmaker, has maintained his his position kind of on my Mount Rushmore. Um, and, and those movies for me, whenever, especially Evil Dead 2, whenever I feel like I'm getting nowhere or I'm losing my way, trying to climb the greasy pole of filmmaking and I needed motivation about what independent spirit and attitude can bring, I go back and watch Evil Dead 2. You get the keys to the uh, 1973 Oldsmobile Delta, as it were. Yeah. And you're sitting there, you're sitting there and you got, you're sitting in front of a blank screen. What were some of the first, I guess, gateway images or thoughts that you had that were your pathway into your journey into starting to write this thing? Yeah, I think as soon as, uh, Sam, I think, used that phrase at one point. He kind of said, take the car keys and bring it for a drive. And in my head, I was like, and I need to crash into things along the way because it is an Evil Dead movie. There needs to be carnage. My starting point, like to, to be straight up, some people have asked me a question, which is, were you scared approaching this, approaching this beloved franchise? And 
I hope it never comes across with arrogance. I wasn't at all because those movies were in my DNA. What I was most frightened about was saying no if I couldn't find a story that I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that scared me most, was this idea that I would be offered the opportunity to work on something that's very special to me, but that I couldn't find a way in. So my starting point was to look for characters and circumstance and metaphor. And I know that metaphor isn't necessarily the obvious thing that exists in you know the original Evil Dead movies, but as a storyteller, I had to lean into what it is that I like and how I like to work. And I just had a vision of, of downtown LA, I had a vision of an earthquake, I had a vision of a high-rise building, and then I started to build this family that could kind of populate that space. So the first couple of months was, I really wasn't thinking about it as a horror movie at all, I was thinking about it as a story. And I was trying to find, as I said, a set of characters that are in a certain position and moment in their life. And then I started to ask the question, what would happen if I shoved the deadites in their face? Because I think what's really different about this to previous Evil Dead movies, and it's only truly occurred to me recently, is that in all the other movies, a group of people go to a creepy or unusual place and they face something dark there. In this story, people are at home enjoying their Friday evening and I bring evil to their doorstep. But in order to bring the evil to their doorstep, I had to find the characters and the place first of all. And then I started thinking about the blood, the guts the carnage, the kills, all of those things that I know instinctively a movie like this kind of has to have. And then from that point, like I'm trying to think of specific images that really, really stuck in my mind. I knew of the, I, I knew of Staphany, the, the, the little totem that's yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Ext- extremely, extremely early, but that's because my niece, Georgia, shout out to her, gave me that idea about four years earlier. And I said, I'm going to put this in a movie. It wasn't a weapon that she showed me. It was just a thing that she had. I turned it into a weapon. So I did have a lot, I had a lot of little images and like some of the some of the impact moments, like say the the, the cheese grater attack, which I know people kind of know about, but maybe <laughs> haven't seen in full yet. That's something that I um, I thought about, and alongside that, trying to think about these kind of high temperature moments where I knew an audience would jump out of their seat because I, I I again instinctively wanted that to happen and know an audience going into watch a movie like this need to jump out of their seat. When you're writing and making a movie for an audience that has now seen everything from Hereditary to Get Out to Terrifier 2, mm-hmm. the the <laughs> the needle has gone from zero to like 10,000 at this point. What do you find even scares an audience these days? Like, how do you develop that? It's a good, it's a good question, and I actually don't have the answer. I just go, I just trust my instinct, and I'll live or die by that, if you know what I mean. I do think where I get confidence in what I do is if what's happening has a connectivity back to character, some sense of metaphor, Mm. but also that you just like the people that it's happening to. Sinister as that sounds, if you like people and then you do horrific things (laughs) to them, an audience tends to react more to it and gets more scared. And putting an audience in their shoes is quite important. Like they're quite an eclectic little mix, this family, but there is an authenticity to them all because all the characters are based on people that I know and love and respect. And, to me, the goal in this movie, it was a very simple structure. I wasn't worried about a typical three-act structure or necessarily where turning points were or anything. I, I knew I wanted a cold open to shake people up and give them a taste of the movie. And then I wanted you to fall in love with a set of characters. And then from that point onwards, I was going to turn the screw tighter and tighter for the, for the remaining hour. That was the structure that I approached. That's how I looked at the film. Oh, man, that opening sequence by far the best in a horror movie ever. Oh, thank you. I mean, we, we came home that night, we were so excited, and we <laughs> yeah. were texting each other, and we're like, dude, what about that opening? And I'm like, that's the best thing I've ever seen. And it was, yeah. thank you, and it was something I had to really fight for, because it's very easy to lose the battle when you're under pressure making a movie, and lose things that have a connection to your main story, 
but actually are more about experience and tone than necessarily driving a plot. But what I knew, there was a couple of, I came at it from a couple of angles. One was, I wanted a cold open. I wanted a prologue, but I didn't want it to be the usual thing of here we are at the place or a prehistory specifically linked to the story. Right. I always just find it a little cheesy personally for my taste. And then in addition, even though I'd made the choice to move Evil Dead away from the woods and away from the cabin and into the city, I was pissed off because I love Evil Dead so much. I wanted my shot to go to the cabin. Yeah. So I found a way of bringing that. I was like, I know I'm, I know my pitch is to go all the way over here, but at the same time, do you mind if I just have a little taste of what went before? But it also was an opportunity to, because first and foremost, I want the fans to be happy. And then I want those fans to take people that have never seen an Evil Dead movie by the hand through the door to the theater and watch it. And I knew I needed that kind of explosion of horror at the beginning, but I wanted the fans to know they were in safe hands, but also the hands of someone that wasn't afraid to subvert what you're used to. And I think the opening shot of the movie does that. You know, it, sh- it's, it shows, I know what Evil Dead is, but also get ready for it to be a little different to how you've seen before. The actual title sequence itself, when yeah. we see the title, is yeah. the coolest title yeah. sequence in film history. Uh, honestly, <laughs> honestly, I've, I've, never seen it. I've never seen anything that, that quite moved me in that way. The whole room got chills. I mean, when we watch it at a screening, everybody just... The, the, the rise. The yes, rise yes. Yeah, yeah. When did you come up with that? Was that something in, in post-production or did you have that kind of in your head? I can thankfully say that it's sitting on the first draft of the screenplay because I, qu- I wow. quite, 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 you know, I don't mind using affectation and making my screenplays a little bit interactive. So there's big giant red lettering, you know, with the description that says these letters carve up through the sky, you know, like it's, 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 <sighs> It's on the page. And even the noise, the first noises you hear over the new line Warner Brothers logo in this movie are like on the, they're the first things you read on on the page of the screenplay. So I'm very detailed. You can't always do it. But with this movie, I just found my groove with just knowing a lot of those tonal moments and how I wanted them to play out. Did you know when you wrote the line, mommies with the maggots, how big that would be? Like my kids (laughs) come up to me and are like, Mommies with the maggots. Give me a few more years. <laughs> <laughs> Not just yet. We're taking them on Friday. Yeah, we are. We're taking two of them on Friday. I love it. Yeah, I love it. going back, what, man. That's what I like to hear. Um, I, look, I think you just put your best foot forward and you have hope. Um, I did enjoy outside. I tried to put some levity in the movie through people's reactions to things. But in addition to that, I did want their, like Evil Dead has some great lines and, you know, it's it's hard to live up to and, you know, it not even not even great lines of dialogue words, just like we all know groovy. And I could never top that. So I needed to find my own kind of uh, my sense of dark humor a little bit and mm-hmm. put it in. But like nothing more sinister than mommies with the maggots now or that line around parasites, as such, yeah. which yes. is which is that's my personal favorite, because I think that that's the worst thing you could possibly call your children. <laughs> and I'm not a parent, but, you know, I have parents and, you know, I can observe the, the behavior of family. It's It's pretty grim, but it was a lot of fun. And you know, being also just a movie nerd and a horror nerd myself, I remember thinking, I hope this gets on a T-shirt. And then lo and behold, Fright, Rag, Fright Rags have it on a T-shirt. So, you know, these are the small victories that keep you going. But when you're a fan of the genre, they're important too, because you are looking around for things. We all love when we watch horror movies, we love things to grip onto and and to kind of have fun with. So, yeah, I was I was hopeful but not much more than that. But I'm really glad. That, like the, weirdly, the che- I never expected the cheese grater to explode the way it exploded. Oh yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Um, and then I noted it like straight away when the trailer came out and was like, "Oh, this this is getting people's attention." 
That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, no. I've hurt myself on a cheese grater. Yeah. I don't know anybody yeah. who It's, it's wild that it really, I don't think it's been really been used as a horror movie no. you know, no. trope before. Just, which it's is incredible. Just, just buy pre-grated or sliced. It's, fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. So at the center of any Evil Dead movie is obviously the Book of the Dead. And you have come up with a very unique personality for yours. And I'm very curious because there is hinting that it may fit into an existing Evil Dead universe. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how you came up with the personality. I mean, obviously, if if there are a series of books, I would think Ash got the more playful one. Fetty's is pretty ruthless, and yours is even just fucking cruel. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us yeah. about just developing the personality and look of your book. It started with uh, another conversation I'd had with Sam Raimi, where I, I knew I wanted there to be at least one direct line between my movie and what went on before. And it didn't need to be more complicated than that. So in my mind, how I discovered that was the idea that in, in Army of Darkness, Ash discovers three books. So I said to Sam, you had one, Fed, I had one, let me take the third one and kind of go to town. And then in doing that, I knew I had to also mix it up because we obviously it's very iconic, the original book with the face. And then Fed, I had that also like, you know, stitched together patchwork kind yeah. of cruel look that it had. And then with this, because I'd taken the influence from Army of Darkness, I wanted it to just, in the tone of my movie, have a little relationship back to that because those books have a kind of life force to them. So that's what gave me the idea for the teeth. It gave me the idea for the fact that there's a sense of a bit of a, a pulse beneath the surface. And then really we just set about working on that book, which took, I, I, we shot the movie in New Zealand. I arrived, I did two weeks in managed isolation. So continued claustrophobia before I actually got out into the world to work on the movie. And then the development of that book took us the entire 12 weeks, three months of prep. Wow. And then it continued on. We didn't need the book on set till maybe a week and a half to, of our shooting schedule. And then even when it arrived, I remember we shot day one and we all looked at each other and we were like, we're still not quite happy. And we kept kind of tweaking and tweaking all the time um, until we were just perfectly happy with its personality. I think what's different in its look inside, because obviously there's a lot to talk about the outside of the book. Yeah. But when people see the movie and you go inside the pages, I always and I always loved it. I always felt like the early books kind of had almost like... You see it in Evil Dead 2013, almost like a collection of playing cards, you know, or there's like these very particular images. I wanted the images to be more intermingled with the words. And the idea that we kind of came up with was that if this book was written by somebody, that person would be insane and would use every piece of available space. So there's no blank by the front page on the inside. There's no blank space anywhere else in the book. Every corner has been filled with lettering or imagery in different ways. And to me, they're they're, they're pointers and markers to the darkness that's about to come They're their recommendations almost and and the um the creation of it was was one of the funnest things i've you know i've actually ever done and i'm very happy to say i have the copy at home um it that's that's i said i don't have children that's my baby yeah hell yeah how many of them did you have to do i i'm trying to i think in total we probably had five so there's i have i have the hero book and then there's a slightly less in order like as in less condition that i think might actually be in town right now um, that's the one we're going to need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. I want, I want the vinyl records. Place, yeah, place, oh, place, place your, place your bits. Yeah, yeah, the, record, right, the records right. are cool too. But then we also had other versions. So we had like I, I tried to make the film as practical as possible. So you could open those teeth, with, you know, using. Uh, CGI, but that that was a practical thing where oh, you know wow. you pull the lever and the teeth open, oh, like a puppet almost. Yeah, well, yeah. So we we had a little version of the book for that, and then we had a solid version for when people pick it up, so that it wouldn't because it's heavy, so it wouldn't suddenly open or pages would fly around. So there's also a solid version, and then maybe a backup. So yeah, four or five versions, but that that speaks to everything in this movie. There was never a one size fits all fix to even the simplest of attack moments or gags or whatever it might be, even 
the simplest things, we always required four or five versions because I wanted so much visual energy to be able to place the camera anywhere. Sure. So when you can pull it, you know, a trick in terms of aligning something to a camera to show someone getting stabbed, but then I move the camera, it doesn't work when I move the camera anymore. We need a different rig or a different approach. And the book was no different to that. We needed a few different ways of being able to handle it. And as Leo wow. said, the, the vinyl, the record, coming up with that yeah. idea and, and just the mechanics of that. Where, did you actually get vinyl uh, like printed? Yeah, no, we, not, not with that recording on it. Um, but we did go and hunt down like really old 78s because that was the idea. It was I always loved the reel-to-reel tape recording. Yeah. Um, but because I wanted the prehistory of this book to go back earlier than that technology, vinyl was the only way in for me to do it. And I, I didn't really want anyone to read the words. I have a little issue with that. Just, I think I, I would not even an issue. I find it fun when someone has the book here, but also unwittingly listens to what's inside the book. And the idea was that, yeah, these, these, you know, these priests of yore would have used uh, a recording system, not unlike this room. It would have felt atmospheric like this (laughs) to, to, to record the things that they were doing and the experiments that they were, that they were playing with the book. And then the, the fun part was, because I'm a stickler for detail, obviously, in the now, Danny wouldn't have had a player that would play a 78, which is why he has to drop his hand on it and just speed it up a yes, little bit more. Yes, I loved it. To actually get the voice <laughs> up, up to the appropriate revolutions per minute kind of thing. So The Boo Crew will be right back. Stephen King, author of Carrie, said, Evil Dead is the most ferociously original horror film of the year. If you think he's kidding, see for yourself. They got up on the wrong side of the grave. Evil Dead from New Line Cinema. Now playing at these theaters. Check your newspaper for time. remember when you were on last time you talked about when you were a little boy mm-hmm. and your dad went and rented the shining and, and hearing it yeah and you're sitting in your room you could hear it yeah. through the walls and that scared you and that kind of informed your approach to telling story through sound and you you feel this throughout this movie and you also feel it unbelievably like i swear there are sessions in the pro tool session for this probably that you just chop the sound completely because you you also weaponize the the power of no sound yeah there are times where it just sucks the air out yeah Yeah, like i think one of those moments that always stands out and i enjoy is before we cut to the actual evil force approaching the building for the first time so there's been all the build-up with danny and all of the details and and the and the audio and then the incantation starts and then there's just that moment of silence uh where everything goes completely quiet and then it bursts into the force driving forward. And I remember mm-hmm. saying to my sound designer, this is when some, he, could, he could never quite interpret this, but it's the one we always joke about, which is I want it to sound like an intergalactic whip crack. What that means, I do not know. <laughs> it meant it should be so big and loud that it could be played out in space and you'd still hear it. Yeah. I think that was kind of the idea. But what helped create the intensity of breaking into that moment was the silence before it. And you do... You do need those silent moments. And what you also need to do with a sound mix in a movie like this is track your high points. Mm -hmm. Because even in in the prologue, there's a couple of really loud moments. But you need to be able to bring the movie back down again to build a little higher and bring it down again to build higher. Because otherwise people will get really fatigued by the intensity. A lot of the mixing work went into getting the shape of the soundscape journey just right. The casting of this movie is just phenomenal. I mean, you know, Alyssa and Lily... Man, they, they they steal the show. They were very special. Yeah, the, the kids are great too, by the yeah. way, because kids are always difficult in horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, with these two, uh, what was it about Alyssa? Because I know that, 
man, some of those scenes, especially the ones where you see through the through the uh, people through the door. Yeah, I mean, frightening. Yeah, because you see what plays out in the hallway, and then you see just her evil look, her evil, her up close grin. Just yeah. you know, let me in, let me in. Like, what was it about her? Like, how did how did she audition for this? Or was it a specific? She's just an evil or? piece of shit. From <laughs> That's all it is. She was just born evil. No, um, it's actually it's a great question, and what uh, it's because there's a really really simple answer. Which was on her tape, like she was obviously very accomplished delivering being a mother. And, and I felt very comfortable with that. But on her tape, the thing that stood out, it was the only read that I got where she enjoyed being evil. Whereas other people were a little bit more aware. She got the idea, having really paid some attention to the screenplay, that the deadites can wipe you out if they want. But they just want you to be on their little string. They want you to be their plaything. So she, her performance had this sinister joy as she performed some of those deadite moments. And that was it. I was like, she gets it. And it, like, she's a great actor. She has great experience. And now she gets the tonality of what the evil and what the darkness in this story is. To me, it was a slam dunk. What elements do you like that um, Lily Sullivan leaned into in terms of uh, bringing Beth to life? Lily, Lily is just such a gung-ho person, which yeah. is great. Um, and there's a little piece of... There's a little piece of me in the character of Beth, and then there's a big piece of actually Lily that shaped Beth, which I really, really loved about Lily. She came in and really tried to get under her skin and figure out those just subtle vulnerabilities that she has as a character who she's like life on the road, but also she's a bit confused and she's lost and she's at a crossroads. But the thing that one of the things that that Lily embraced, which I loved, was we didn't want Beth to be a perfect hero. And it took us a moment to calibrate that when we were rehearsing. If we actually watch the movie again, like she's got a little bit of a spirit of ash in her insofar she's just a tiny bit clumsy it's obviously not as broad as the way ash plays out but like how many times she just bumps into things or kicks a pot or trips over something or tries to kick open a door and falls on her ass or doesn't quite know how to use a shotgun all of those things are important because she wasn't coming in equipped to face nobody could come in to be equipped to actually face what it is and her willingness to embrace that because that's actually a risk for an actor is to allow yourself at times to just be like a little bit goofy here Mm -hmm. and there. It's much safer space to be in control, but she allowed herself to go out of control. And then her ability to maintain the levels of fear she had to maintain was really impressive to me and the techniques that she used to keep herself in that space because we shot the movie pretty much in order. So I was asking the cast especially those reacting to the horror, to show up. It's Tuesday. Hey, guess what, guys? You've been through the mincer on this movie, and I, now I need your heart rate at 210 beats a minute because that's where you are in the story. And again, the techniques and the professionalism to be able to get to that space and maintain a reality of reaction, I, I think was really sick. For all of the cast, but Lily particularly having to lead the way as the rising hero that's also scared shitless was, was really impressive. I noticed that this film didn't have the tree rape scene. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to leave that element out of your story? It's been done already. You yeah. know, it's been done. It's been done in it was it was done in the original. It's done in the remake. Yeah. And I just felt uh, there was places where I it wasn't that I didn't necessarily want to go there. Like to me, nothing should be out of bounds when you make a horror movie. But that was one of those things I didn't feel like I could put a fresh spin on, except for the fact that I could tie somebody up in an urban context and play around with cables like vines. But to me, that was the high point of that idea. And then I just felt like I needed to move along. It just, it felt, I said, this, it's, it, it's, it's 
very, very flippant to say this, but like the Delta is so iconic and personal to Sam, it never would have fit in this movie either. So that also the tonality of of the tree rape would not have worked in this movie at all. Yeah, yeah. no, we found that really refreshing actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, re- I really love that uh, that uh, bathtub scene. With Alyssa, I mean that was just insane. Like, I love like, a bath. I love a good bath. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God. and that's an- by the way, that's another thing. Not to jump straight, but another thing where there's no. We had like five different baths to achieve all the things that we needed to do. You know, the bath that could bubble, the bath. That, oh my you, god! You, if you think about it, think about a regular bathtub. You can't climb out over the side and yeah. hide yourself completely. I needed her to almost drop into hell as if it's things that were not right. possible with a bath. It was again another thing we just needed to have like four or five different bathtubs. God, it's insane. I was wondering about the cinematography. Okay, like you've had a long-standing relationship with the previous cinematographer, yes, Tom yes. Comerford, right? Yeah. And I remember some of your uh, visual aesthetics with him was you wanted every frame to be instantly recognizable mm-hmm. as to what movie is from. And you do this, you keep this mantra with uh, Dave Garbett, yeah. who's you know no stranger to the Evil Dead Not universe on this yeah. one. Yeah. And you guys have concocted magical scenes, including that one in the bathroom, right? When yeah. she's up in the corner. Yeah. Things that look like yeah. paintings, right? Yeah. What... Was it about kind of, uh, or how did you go about realigning yourself with uh, a new partner in crime, so to speak, a new cinematographer, and maintain that intimacy to be able to get exactly what you were looking for? I think it's 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 a time thing, and luckily yeah. I had enough time because yeah, you do cross the line and start a new creative collaboration with someone that you don't necessarily have the same shorthand with. And I did, you know, I'm I'm I like prep and I like to do really serious prep and I like to do that soft prep before the clock is on and everybody is gathered. So. By the time I met with Dave, I was bringing to him a lot of visual references to showcase what I wanted and also bringing to the table quite a lot of storyboards at that point. And then you start to figure out how each other work and you start to figure out each other's strengths and weaknesses Mm -hmm. and how. And I remember it was nice in the early weeks of the shoot, Dave would come to me and say, I I really get what you're going after now and I hope I'm giving you what you want. And I'd be like, you are because I'm also learning what you're doing and I'm seeing how to get what I need from the way that you, you kind of work. But it was that same approach which was like i remember day one at one point and it's 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 a funny story we were shooting something just getting to know the family and we got the shot and then the, the camera operator like tilted down to get a little more of like someone picking something up and i was just like cut i'm like if we're if i want that that's a different shot you know that kind of way so it's trying to again take that approach that every like every single picture forwards the story and kind of tells a story and for, there's you always have moments you have to shoot a little bit of coverage but as much as possible we didn't. And that's why this was such an involved and long shoot. Like we shot the main unit shot for 63 days. And then I oversaw a second unit for an additional 30 days of those 63. Wow. That's 93 days of crew rolling camera on essentially a single location kind of, wow. you know, uh, lo- wow. locked in movie. So that was but that was because the level of detail that we put in and the need for particular moments to really be etched into your mind visually and to stand out because let's not forget I'm going up against some all-timer movies here so I needed to be able to plant my flag in a really unique way part of that is the the composition the score is insane right Stephen McKeon and you've worked with him yeah Yeah, forever yeah yeah yeah. so okay so the music kind of takes it some of it sounds like it's wood being abused some of it sounds like you can hear like it almost sounds like a building you can hear cables and things as part of the sonic personality of it and then you also hear those huge dark choirs of angels from hell that that just kind of gives you those chills where do you find that you wanted this to kind of fit in in the pantheon of existing musical identities of the evil dead franchise and make it your own yeah like truth be told i actually did like when i was writing the script i listened to the evil dead 2 score on vinyl which tonally was nothing like what i was writing but it was Mm -hmm. more just a reminder that i was in that world 
when I approach music, I just come at it fresh. I like I try not to listen to other things too much. It's the same when I'm writing. I struggle to watch movies because I watch the finished article and it makes me panic mm. <laughs> because I've got this thing that's like like open heart surgery. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. there's this like nicely stitched up person over there that's that's functioning. So but but musically, I knew this movie was going to be big and brazen. And I really said to Stephen that's what I need to like you need to go to toe to toe with the visuals and sometimes there's obviously conversations about underpinning or not letting the mute let, let the music do another job I was like no this is full noise so if I can push punch you in the face with the picture and the sound at the same time that's going to make me really happy and you're right to touch on like like the inst- musical instruments were abused in the making of this movie <laughs> like he started experimenting he would he would get kitchen implements not he would like early days he went and got this huge big kitchen knife and he took to his grand piano in his studio and just started hacking at the strings and then when it got to actually because we recorded with a, with a full 65 piece orchestra and a number of different choirs but they had such a fun time because not everything was specific it was taking the musical skills of people and saying do something crazy like just attack attack your instrument so there's a lot of broken strings a lot of like, you know, like bloodied fingers and a lot of that tactile behavior that, that went into creating the score, which is which is pretty wild. You know, it's it's a it's a pretty high octane piece of music, which I'm really pleased to say is getting released on vinyl as well. Oh, it's, beautiful. It's, that's the opposite of your aura app or whatever it is. That helps, yeah. Yeah. That helps you chill out. This is like if you need to get your energy up, put yeah. on this score. Do we get the incantations printed on the same on the same I, vinyl? I, I think there is something on there. I can't remember. I know there was a, there was a request or maybe they've been using the marketing of the vinyl, but there, there might be something. I'm oh, not, I, I, I can't remember in the moment. If not, we got to make it happen. Yeah. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, <laughs> single absolutely. print or something. And I hear there's two... Bruce Campbell cameos in the film like here's one thing also anyone who's about to watch this uh, my personal take on this is I did not miss Bruce Campbell yeah. in this movie I did not miss Ash right. because it felt like he was part of the DNA already either be, be it Easter eggs or, or attitude of different characters he felt still very much part of his, his essence yeah, was like in the there yeah, exactly yeah, exactly so uh, tell us a bit about these cameos uh, and I, I understand one comes with a cash reward yeah, which has already been cashed in. Somebody, it has. Somebody, somebody got it at, right at our South by Southwest premiere. Someone oh. came up and so there's one you have to listen out for. Okay, and what I would say about well, actually both you have to listen out for. He's visually you don't see him in the movie. One you have to listen out for, and it's a character. I'll say it's on the vinyl, but the the fun part is that might well also be Ash Williams because if you keep in mind how time travel has worked in yes. Evil Dead World, yes. Right? Right. So there is a possibility. I like the humorous idea that at a key time where someone else is experimenting with a book that Ash would walk into that room and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> um, and, and so that's kind of planted in that way. And then the other one is deeper in the sound design. Like I've got cameos throughout it in the sound design. Seen in the elevator with the heavy breathing is me mixed in with this incredible Danish singer, both of us in a studio doing the weirdest heavy breathing that we could for our sound designer, Peter Albertson in, in Denmark. But Bruce, and I will, with his blessing, because, you know, I respect, I respect Bruce's personality. With his blessing, I do have a great video of him chowing down on an apple big time in a Foley studio. Do you want to add a little bit more meat to a scene where somebody chews on an eyeball? So he's also got a little bit of vocal presence. And then in addition, we have a lot of the original analog sound design recordings like mixed in with this movie in different places. So if you listen really carefully over the opening of the film, you'll hear the original fly from Evil Dead. And it's also the last sound of the movie 
we've utilized in the vault where Danny finds the book. That's original wind that Sam Sam Raimi recorded one night. He woke up and heard it and was creeped out and grabbed his Nagra back in like 1979. <sighs> so I've got this beautiful archive of all of the old original Evil Dead. I can see your eyes lighting up right <laughs> so now. So cool. Yeah, I've got this archive. Awesome. And we, we, we didn't want to use them to, again to define this movie. But what I wanted to do with this film was make something that was uniquely its own thing but absolutely dripping in the DNA of what makes Evil Dead movies what they are and why they're loved. And even just getting to do that in simple ways with sound was was super fun. Was there ever any plans or are there relationships between these characters and either Ash Williams or Mia from 2013's Evil Dead? Are they linked in any way in your mind? These are definitely a separate set of characters. And that was important for me because I always come at things from a character point of view. And I didn't want to be saddled. I was going to say saddled. Saddled with the baggage of... um, I didn't want to be saddled with the baggage of of having to draw lines between relationships or family or anything like that. Like, we needed... I think this franchise needed to make a clean break, to, to break new ground and open up in a different way. So it was important for those characters to be fresh meat for the grinder. The elevator scenes in the movie are fantastic. Each one is like a nightmare inducing scene especially when you get to the last time we, we were in the elevator yeah i mean there's cameras everywhere man there's like angles and there's yeah and how how i mean what, what were the challenges in pulling that scene off it, it, endless it was um the elevator so hard to sh- was so hard to shoot in, in in every aspect of it especially when you start filling it with liquid because yeah. how do you get camera people with two characters inside a box and fill it with liquid. And my brain, sometimes, even as a filmmaker, you can be really stupid. I'd be like, open the door. And it's like, <laughs> oh no, wait a minute, then the blood's going to yeah. come out. So we had to find the, the, the solution, and I don't want to ruin too much, you know, to show off too much of the magic trick. But what I came to realize is you can't fill a box from top to bottom with blood and film inside it. I needed to create parts of an elevator that could give the impression of where you are in the, in the rise of the blood and to use camera angles cleverly to just basically pull the wool over the eyes and create that feeling. So there was, yeah, and there's like, there's there's a really simple shot where Cassie looks out a little window and we were like, how are we going to do this? She's in there, fill it with blood. And I was like, let's use that old trick of just like build a tiny box just behind the piece you can see and fill that with blood in front of her face oh. that will give the impression. So every trick in the book, but that was again the way it was for almost every scene in this movie. Like there's a monstrous conclusion in this film and from the simplest things I learned in film school to techniques I'd never even used before as a filmmaker, we had to utilize every single one of those because every shot needed a different approach. And the blood elevator was not a million miles away. It was less shot, but every every next step of intensity in and peril in terms of the characters required a little bit of a different a different methodology to achieve it. And it was it, that was really tough. The blood elevator was the thing that was throughout the shoot always hanging over me is being on the line and it was hardcore and then preparation for the you know the kind of splashdown moment was was tough as well and working with like a seven-year-old stunt performer that that went that went through that for us and rehearsing that with water and and that worry of the blood will be a little heavier will it behave the same as the tests when we use the water so for all of the you know professionalism and control and stunt people were incredible on this movie like incredible it was still at that independent spirit of just crossing yeah yeah crossing your fucking fingers and hoping and we got that in one three cameras we got it in one and had we not got it in one i would have shot for the rest of the day it would have taken eight hours to clean up and then it would have been really squeaky squeaky bum time because it would have been you got one more goat and if you don't get it we can't afford to do it again but thankfully we got it in the morning so i could kind of have a spring in my step for the rest of the day nice oh hell yeah (laughs) all right well as we come to the end here you guys got anything else before we let him go no 
We're good. I never want to leave this you're room. You're good. Hey, we, we, we can have you all day, man. We, can, we know you're busy. Everybody wants to talk to Lee Cronin to talk about this movie, which is a great sign, man. One more thing. Yeah, hell yeah. The, uh, Jerry Springer's the, final the, thought. Yeah, the, the nice homage to Fetty Alvarez is Evil Dead. Yeah, the, the, weapon, the weapon she uses. Yeah, and, you know, the, we, the weapon she yeah, uses, yeah. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I think like I wanted to tip a cap in all directions, and the chainsaw had to, like, it had to be in this story. Placing when the chainsaw came into the story was obviously tricky, but it's planted very early on. I think all the weapons in the movie mm-hmm. are yeah. referenced or planted in, in some way early on in the story, but that was a definite, you know. And she, she delivers a great line, too. But the fun thing is that you don't add that cheesy, like, 80s line, like, say hello to mommy. Yeah. Like, you know, what you do instead is the camera pans, and she looks left, and she looks right, and she's like... I got weapon options. Yeah, and she says, turn it on, Cass. Yes, yeah. <laughs> turn it on, Cass. Um, that was awesome. Yeah, it's... Um, I, I wanted her to be grounded as uh, definitely as a character in, in, in that way, shape, or form, that she's unequipped, but she has reached the moment of there's nothing left to lose at this yeah. point in time. And I think you've got to push a hero in a story like this to their limit, to that place, where then they can take on the most nightmarish vision of Family Impossible with a chainsaw, yeah. which is quite a fun moment. Tricky to shoot, but fun to fun to watch. Well, we'll leave all the other surprises for you listening yes. and go and check it out. And you have to check it out. So, Lee, man, thank you so much. You are an oh, absolute my original, yes. my thank friend. Thank you. Thanks for being out there, inspiring us, and and thanks for making this film, man. Evil Dead Rise in theaters everywhere, April twenty first. It is a middle finger to cinema. Do not miss out on this one. Yeah. Lee. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 380. Special thanks to our guest, Lee Cronin. At time of release, you can see Evil Dead Rise in theaters everywhere April 21st. We already got our tickets to go back opening night. We'll see you there. Production tracks provided by the great Power Man 5000. Till next time, from myself, Lauren and Leo, it is Boo Crew saying. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Moon. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network, home of the Boo Crew, horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy, or disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. 
Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories if you're brave enough. (laughs) 